0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. It's our... One hundredth episode! Congratulations, Sarah.
1: High five. Nice. What are we doing to celebrate?
0: Well, we are staying inside and not going anywhere because...
1: (laughs) We are snowed in.
0: Yes. We got 4.2 centimeters of snow today.
1: What is that in, like, U.S. length?
0: That's an inch and a half. And that's on top of the 4.8 centimeters we got yesterday. And uh, it's currently minus 18 degrees outside, or about zero in Fahrenheit speak. So yeah, we are staying inside and watching a movie and recording the podcast. I
1: feel like we should have planned ahead and like had some champagne to pop.
0: Maybe, but also champagne's expensive.
1: Ooh, are podcasts governed by the CRTC? In which case, Scream Scene does not condone drinking.
0: Sure. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't, don't think so, though. I don't know what the regulation is. I wouldn't be surprised if it had to do with where the server hosting mm. the content is, that you're, like, governed by that law. That's I wouldn't be surprised. I know with radio broadcasting,
1: you can't, like recommend drinking or, like, advocate drinking, because then you could lose your license. Huh. But it, I don't think it's like a... Like, in the case of us, we don't have a license to lose. Sure. <laughs> that wouldn't be as an exciting Bond title as <laughs> license, license to License to Lose.
0: <laughs> uh. Uh, so, what are we watching today, Ben? Well, today, Sarah, we're watching a movie that I had never heard of before... Doing this show, and I still know very little about. it. not she
1: supposed to be doing research?
0: I did. Ah. It's The Mysterious Doctor from 1943. And, uh, yeah, I don't really know much about the plot, but I can tell you a bit about some behind-the-scenes stuff about the people who made it. Do tell. So this is our first Warner Brothers movie that we're seeing since Return of Doctor X back in 1939.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: Now, since that time, quite a few significant things have happened for Warner Brothers, uh, such as the transformation of Humphrey Bogart into a star with the release of Maltese Falcon in 1941 and Casablanca in 1942. Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers also threw its weight behind the war effort with propaganda cartoons for the Air Force, anti-Nazi wartime movies, uh, and war bonds and Red Cross stands outside Warner-owned theaters. Now, the studio had been one of the few to make anti-Nazi movies before the war even started, uh, and this was precipitated by the murder of their German sales head in Berlin in 1936.
1: We talked about that in an episode.
0: We did. And so with the war now on, the studio was, like, fully committed um, they were making so many pro-war, anti-Nazi movies that by 1943, like, audiences were starting to get, like, a little bit sick of wartime movies. Oh, um, that's and, ironic. uh, Warners just kept making them, regardless of the fact of whether they made money or not. And the Navy ended up, like, naming a destroyer after the Warners, um, oh. if I'm not mistaken. Uh, basically in honor of, like, the immense contribution of the Warner Brothers studio to the war effort. Okay. In 1941, the studio cut its yearly film production in half by eliminating its B-movie department. Oh. Yeah. So, no more Bs. The former head of the Warner Brothers B-movie department, Brian Foy, moved over to 20th Century Fox, where he started producing their B-movies, such as The Undying Monster. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. So this might be one of the reasons why we haven't seen any horror from Warner Brothers in a few years.
1: So then, is this horror like an A picture?
0: Yes, uh, technically speaking, uh, since Warner's wasn't in the business of making B movies anymore. They were um, the Ozness. It was still an attempt to cash in on the B movie horror trend. Uh, so this movie does have a smaller budget than like other. Warner A-pictures, but larger than what other studios were allotting to their horror movies. Um, The last time I think we had an A-picture horror movie, it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from MGM.
1: Hmm, right. That's 41, Mm -hmm. right? And I also get the feeling that this is like a cash-in, as you said, but mainly just to get money to fund these propaganda
0: films. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. Yeah. So, in 1943, the year that this movie came out, uh, Olivia de Havilland, uh, who was on contract with Warner Brothers, sued the studio when she discovered that a 1931 California labor law made contracts lasting over seven years illegal. The major movie studios had been getting around this by only counting days that the actor was working against the seven years, stretching out contracts to much, much longer. The courts ended up ruling in de Havilland's favor uh, that seven years means seven calendar years. Yeah, oof. Uh, So this is now known as the de Havilland Law, and as a result, not only did de Havilland leave Warners, but many actors left studios that they'd been shackled to for illegally long periods. And this was a major step in sort of the eventual dismantling of the traditional studio system. Mm. So the director of the Mysterious Doctor is Benjamin Stoloff, and that's a name we've not heard in a long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Stolov directed Night of Terror with Bella Lugosi ten oh, years no. ago for Columbia.
1: Right. That's the one where the guy is trying is like buried alive Purposefully and like has a tunnel back into the mansion, and Bela Lugosi plays a Sikh man?
0: Uh, Yeah, he's the butler. Yeah. Uh, So Stoloff has made 18 more movies in the decade since we last saw him. The film's producer, William Jacobs, had worked as a Warner Brothers producer since 1938, but he got his start in movies when he wrote the script for Night of Terror.
1: So this is a bit of a comeback for both of these guys.
0: Well, since becoming a Warner Brothers producer in 38, Jacobs had hired Stoloff as a director on four films for Warners prior to this one, ranging from comedies to wartime thrillers. So it feels to me like, you know, this writer who got his start working on, like, this shitty B-movie with this director, and then when the writer, you know, became a big shot producer, kind of paying the favor back and hiring the director.
1: Yeah, I like that.
0: The film's editor is Clarence Colster, uh, who was also the editor of the original Frankenstein and The Old Dark House.
1: Oh, that's a positive sign.
0: The film's cinematographer is Henry Sharp, whose work we last saw in Dr. Cyclops.
1: Okay. Yeah, he had to be talented because of his, like, Technicolor and Mm -hmm. all of the stuff you have to do for Technicolor. Well,
0: and also all the special effects that were involved in that movie.
1: yeah. Uh, is this movie in Technicolor? No. Okay.
0: So top build in the cast is John Loder, a British actor born in London in 1898. He was born William John Muir Lowe, son of General W.H.M. Lowe, who accepted the surrender of Ireland after the 1916 Easter uprising.
1: Okay. Quite some heritage.
0: Yeah, he ended up uh, following in his father's footsteps and was educated. (laughs) And forcing Ireland to surrender to him. (laughs) No, not not quite that way. Um, He was educated at the Royal Military College. Uh, He was commissioned a second lieutenant in the British Army in World War I, fought in the Battle of the Somme, and was taken prisoner by the Germans in 1918. Oh. Uh, After the war ended, he stayed on with the British Army in Germany as part of, like, the, like, mopping up crew. And then when he went back into civilian life, he started a pickle factory with a friend of his in Germany. uh, (laughs) And just, like, kept living in Germany. He eventually developed an interest in acting and assumed the stage name John Loder, presumably because of, like, this distinguished British military family background that he came from. Mm -hmm. He started appearing in German silent films uh, we actually have seen him before in the 1928 version of Alrauna as one of the title characters' like many male conquests. Oh, really? Yeah, he plays a character just called the Vicomte. Um <laughs> And then when sound came around, he left Germany for Hollywood uh, because, you know, didn't actually speak a lot of German. For sure. He acted for Paramount for a few years before returning to the UK. In the UK, he continued acting. Uh, He was the young man whom Boris Karloff switched brains with in The Man Who Changed His Mind in 1936. Awesome. And he had a major role in Alfred Hitchcock's Sabotage that same year. When World War II began, he returned to Hollywood and signed with Warner Brothers, usually playing upper-crust kind of characters in uh, lower-budget films. Co-starring is 21-year-old actress Eleanor Parker, who was much later known as the Woman of a Thousand Faces.
1: Interesting.
0: Parker was born on June 26th, 1922 in Ohio, and basically from day one wanted to be an actress and worked single-mindedly to achieve that goal. Uh, She headed to California, started acting at the Pasadena Playhouse. She was spotted by a Warner Brothers talent scout and signed to the studio at 18 years old. Uh, At this point of making this movie, she's still at the beginning of her career. She's not really much of anyone at this point. However, she would rise up at Warner Brothers, eventually starring in the 1946 remake of Of Human Bondage. She also starred in the 1950 women in prison movie Caged and 1951's Detective Story opposite Kirk Douglas for Paramount. She was nominated for a Best Actress Academy Award for both of those movies, as well as 1955's Interrupted Melody for MGM. She's probably best known today for playing the Baroness in 1965's The Sound of Music. Okay. She passed away in 2013 at 91 years old.
1: So where does this Woman of a Thousand Faces nickname come in?
0: Uh, It's not a makeup reference like Lon Chaney. It simply refers to her acting prowess. Um, She never really cared about becoming a star. She cared about doing the roles that would challenge her the most. So her acting career was very varied, and she played a lot of different parts in a lot of different movies. It meant that she never really became like a marquee actress but it meant that she was extremely well respected for her acting ability
1: okay interesting i wonder how she avoided being typecast if she was going for these very unique challenging roles
0: Hmm. i guess primarily it was that from what i understand like she would turn down roles she wasn't interested in which would lead to her getting suspended on her contracts and getting into a lot of trouble, uh, which is why she bounced around from a few different studios, um, but she only ever really went for roles that she thought were interesting.
1: That's kind of a risky business. Mm -hmm. You know, we've seen like Bella Lugosi, case in point, of turning down a role and having that ruin everything, so good for her.
0: Yeah, she was quite successful. Bruce Lester, another member of the cast, was born in Johannesburg, South Africa in 1912. He initially wanted to be a tennis pro until friends convinced him that he'd make more money as an actor.
1: <laughs> I, I don't
0: know how much is Serena Williams making. Uh, I feel like it's probably not comparable to whatever tennis pros in the nineteen like twenties were making. Sure. Like I don't know if there's like a direct way to one to one compare. <laughs> Uh, His initial career was in Britain, where he appeared in several successful and acclaimed films uh, right away in 1934, but his career quickly stagnated, and soon he was appearing in Quota Quickies. He moved to Hollywood in 1938 and was signed to Warner Brothers. He played Mr. Bingley in the 1940 version of Pride and Prejudice, and appeared opposite Betty Davis in The Letter. Mysterious Doctor was one of the last films he made before returning to the UK to serve in World War II. He returned to acting after the war, but his career declined, and he retired after appearing in 1958's Tarzan and the Trappers. A couple of people we will recognize in the cast include Lester Matthews. Uh, We've seen this English actor before in Werewolf of London and The Raven, uh, both in 1935. He was the, like... Romantic male lead in both of those movies. I don't remember. Tall, thin, mustache, kind of balding.
1: That just describes all of them.
0: His career has continued since then in small roles, focusing largely on his sort of upper-class British sort of bearing, I guess. (laughs) Sure. Forrester Harvey is another familiar face. He was the innkeeper in The Invisible Man. And we also saw him in minor roles in Invisible Man Returns, the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde, and The Wolfman. So The Mysterious Doctor was released on March 3rd, 1943. It got a mildly positive reception from critics of the time, who considered it suitably entertaining. Sure. To the best of my knowledge, it has never been released on home video, and is basically a movie you have to catch when it comes on TCM, uh, where it airs from time to time.
1: You can always count on TCM for that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. So, yes, I really don't know what to expect.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. How how successful was it was, like, in terms of dollar bills?
0: I don't know. No?
1: Okay. Just kind of curious if Warner Brothers' plan of, like, let's make some money to fund these propaganda films, or maybe this is a propaganda film as a horror movie... Who knows? I guess we'll know. Yes. After we watch it. Yes. (laughs) Well, folks, if you want to watch along, uh, make sure you have access to TCM.
0: Check your TV guide.
1: (laughs) You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Mysterious Doctor, directed by Benjamin Stoloff from 1943.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Welcome back everyone, we just finished watching The Mysterious Doctor from 1943, directed by Benjamin Stoloff. You know, I made a joke about this film being propaganda,
0: but it's propaganda. Yeah, you were right. You were 100% dead-on accurate. This is 100% wartime propaganda.
1: Yeah. Not that
0: bad of a movie. Not that bad of a movie.
1: Yeah, what did you think of it?
0: It was fine. Basically, a wartime thriller dressed up in some horror trappings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can certainly see why this movie's never been, like, re-released. Like, why it doesn't have, like, a home video release or anything. Because the only context where I could see it getting a home video release would be, like, on some sort of box set. Like, Warners Goes to War! And, like, that was just, like, a box set of these kind of wartime movies, because removed from the context of the war? Mm-hmm. Eh.
1: Yeah, this is made for a very specific audience and a very specific point of time. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a, a Scooby-Doo mystery thriller it's, set in England.
0: <laughs> it's Scooby-Doo, only instead of like Old Man McGucket under the ghost costume, it's Herr Nazi. Yes. Yeah.
1: Beware Let's... Nazis.
0: Right. <laughs> so let's um let's talk about the story, which is certainly convoluted.
1: Yes. So I'll be doing this in a bit of an interesting way. I just want to point out some of our main characters here. Sure, yeah. So first we have Dr. Frederick Hol- Holmes. Holmes. There is Simon
0: the innkeeper. Simon Tewkesbury.
1: Tukesbury. He's not a hobbit, he's actually quite tall, Um, but he wears (laughs) executioner's hood um, because there's a mine nearby and some dynamite went off in his face before he was expecting it, so he wears the hood in kind of like a Phantom of the Opera type deal. Mm -hmm. Then there's Sir Henry Leland, the local aristocrat. Yeah. Bart Redmond is the town's fool, I guess. Um, He's not... Super bright, and so people kind of make fun of him.
0: He has, like, a mental disability, is what's implied.
1: Then there's Lieutenant Christopher, who also goes by Kit. Yeah. And then Letty, who is Simon's niece. Mm -hmm. So those are our main cast of characters. And the film opens with a headless man walking through the foggy moors of Cornwall. Mm -hmm. Did you look up if there are moors? There are
0: moors in Cornwall, Cornwall, but... Hollywood doesn't know what moors are because, like, moors are areas of bog where, like, nothing grows because yeah. it's infertile. Yeah. But Hollywood always likes to make bogs into, like, overgrown forests with like, bog. Like, a
1: Florida swamp. Ah, I Almost, mean. Almost. In the way that, like, there's always all these trees and vegetation.
0: Yeah, I mean, they don't put in, like, swamp type plants but yeah this is more the 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 landscape here is like rocky with like dead trees and really the only thing that makes it moorish i guess is that they've just pumped like metric tons of fog onto the set
1: <laughs> you know if i could go back to the 40s i would definitely invest in dry ice sure because <laughs> those stocks are going up <laughs> so that's how the film opens and i think that's quite it was quite shocking.
0: It was a strong opening.
1: Yeah. But as the film continues, we see a kindly, unseeming doctor hitching a ride to a town called Morgan's Head, which we learn is so named from a feud between two aristocrats, like, tons of years ago, who were fighting over this mine. And the story goes that the winning aristocrat um, killed the aristocrat named Morgan, last name Morgan, by... Stabbing him and then cutting off the head and putting it on a pike. Mm-hmm. And Morgan still wanders looking for his head.
0: Yeah, it's a very like traditional horror movie setup. When we begin, we have this outsider who's the doctor coming in on the coach, and the coachman's all like, Oh, don't go to Morgan's head, it's haunted or whatever, and then drops him off, and then he arrives at like the inn, and Simon lets him in, and at first it's like, oh, who's this guy with the scary hood on? And then people are telling him the ghost story, and it's like, alright, cool.
1: Mm hmm Yeah, it's it's neat. Now, this tin mine um, is not in service because the men of the town are afraid of Morgan's ghost, who Mm -hmm. haunts the place. Um, The doctor decides, you know, the next day I'm going to go check it out, and he's followed by Simon, and by the ghost.
0: Yeah, and Simon's following him because the town suspects the doctor of maybe being a German spy.
1: Yes, there's some parts of this film that I'm just kind of gl- like skipping for the ease of giving a plot synopsis. But yeah, we, we see um, the night that the doctor is staying at the hotel, he is like writing notes like he's a spy And there were rumors that um, some German parachuters Mm -hmm. just, like, landed in Cornwall, so the town is a little suspicious of him.
0: Yeah, it'd be, like, from, you know, Germans doing bombing raids over England, getting shot down, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, like I said, the doctor heads into the mine, Simon follows, and then the ghost follows, and we see a struggle, and the doctor's killed. Mm Mm-hmm. Whoa.
0: Title character, killed off 20 minutes in.
1: (laughs) Lieutenant Christopher arrests Bart, who apparently witnessed the murder, Um, and Christopher is like, no, it has to be Bart, there's no such thing as ghosts. There is a bit of a mob scene in here, where the villagers get a little too drunk, and they decide to go and attack Bart in the jail, tar and feather him, as it were, um, for being the ghost. Uh, Luddy manages to get ahead of the mob and let Bart out and hide him in the mine.
0: Yeah, she's basically the only one who's defending Bart to the townsfolk because Bart's kind of your standard, like, movie, like, of mice and men, gentle giant type where, like, he's not very bright and he's big, but he's not, like, actually dangerous. Like, he's super sweet, but everybody's prejudiced against him because people are shit.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Since Bart has a lot of time to spend at the mine, he discovers some things, and he brings Letty to come check out these secret passages. And these secret passages lead up to Sir Henry Leland's house? Um, As they're snooping around, they also discover a costume for the Headless Morgan ghost. Mm -hmm. And then Lieutenant Christopher also shows up because he's searching the house, because he and his company have been company or should I say military in any case the military suspicious of Leland so Christopher is checking it out and then that's when Leland arrives and holds them all at gunpoint and explains that his family is from Germany and he is haunting quote-unquote the mine to keep people from getting the tin out of there and this is his way of serving the Fuhrer
0: yeah because he's hampering the war effort this way
1: it's all been an elaborate ruse hmm He shoots Bart a few different times throughout this climax, but in any case, he shoots Bart and then locks Letty and Chris up in the mine and then plans to blow it up. But we see Simon wandering through the mine, and he arrives just in time to break the line connecting the detonator to the explosives, and then he fights, has some fisticuffs, with Leland during which his mask is pulled off and, gasp, it's the Mysterious Doctor. (laughs) Leland is killed by being shoved into a wall that has a knife sticking out of it. Bart's fine, despite being shot several times throughout the climax. And at the end, we are back at the inn. Uh, The Doctor explains that he's working for... Her Majesty's Secret service, as it were. I don't think they say that explicitly. No, they don't say
0: that sentence.
1: (laughs) He was sent to investigate the mine and seeing if it was still viable and seeing why people aren't mining it. Leland, as the ghost, tried to stop him but killed Simon by accident. So the doctor took Simon's place in order to continue his investigation. And while there's kind of a moment of like, oh, but my uncle Simon... It's all fine because the mine is open, the men are going to work, long live the king and screw Hitler.
0: Yeah, the movie literally ends with like the miners like marching in formation off to the mine like singing like a patriotic war song.
1: Yep, the end.
0: <laughs> so, the thing about this movie that I will say in its favor is that it's got like a bit of a convoluted story because it's this like mystery of like what's really going on here, mm-hmm. but it does do the work to put in a lot of details to explain its various, like, twists and turns, right? Like
1: It doesn't feel like twists for twists' sake. I feel like it sets things up and then has them pay off.
0: Right. Like, for example, with the Doctor going into the mine, and then Simon goes in after him, and then the Ghost goes in after them, kills Simon, and the Doctor takes its place... That works because the mine is filled with poisonous gas. So you have to wear a gas mask when you go in, which is why both the doctor and Simon have a gas mask on. So they look the same because otherwise Simon walks around wearing a big executioner's hood. How would you get that mixed up with the doctor, right? So Mm -hmm. it takes care of little details like that um simon's a good misdirect early in the movie to be like oh who's this creepy guy uh but he's also useful because then the fact that he wears a mask all the time enables us to have the twist where ah the doctor's still alive at the end right so the movie takes care of a lot of these details throughout so that it's not coming off you know half cocked i guess
1: and even with leland being the one who has like the secret basin there Um, he mentions that poisonous gas sometimes comes out of the mine unexpectedly, so make sure to wear a gas mask. Yet when they are going to go look for the doctor's body, he says, don't worry, we don't need to worry about poisonous gas today. Mm. And it's like, why is that? Why do you know when to expect poisonous gas?
0: It's funny because I think... Like, this movie, set in Cornwall, has all these British actors. um, Like, Eleanor Parker is the only actor in this, I think, who's not British. So it has this very British feel, but it is an American movie, uh, you know, made in Hollywood. And I think the most telling thing that this is an American movie is that the aristocrat turns out to be the bad guy at the end. Because that's, like, such an American thing. I was not surprised in the least when the town's... Uh, local nobleman turned out to be the Nazi. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a very Hollywood thing. So this movie is wartime propaganda. Yes. And if there's something I have against it, it's that it's like a very ugly brand of wartime propaganda. Um,
1: What do you mean by that?
0: So it utilizes the worst kind of anti-immigration national purity kind of rhetoric in its characterization of the villain. So Sir Henry's ancestors came to England 200 years ago from Germany, but of course they're still loyal to the Fuhrer and the Nazis, because they have this German ancestry. And that's the kind of thinking that leads to putting people like in internment camp because my great-great-grandfather came from the country we happen to be at war with right now, which is ludicrous, right? But it's played off in the movie as totally reasonable that like, oh yeah, you know, even though I don't have a German name anymore, and, like, don't have a German accent and, like, never been to Germany. My ancestors came here from Germany 200 years ago, so I'm loyal to the Nazis. And that's how you stir up anti-immigrant feeling among people, right? Yeah, so, that's
1: a really good point.
0: So it's it's a little bit ugly that way. Also, um, Kit is kind of the worst.
1: Yeah, I thought there was going to be something about, like him being evil or something because he just was so antagonistic
0: yeah he's basically this stick up his ass British officer and at first he's positioned you know as being very heroic because he's an officer in the army and it's wartime. but he kind of becomes this huge asshole once he starts suspecting Bart of being the murderer because it's basically on no evidence his evidence for why Bart has to be the murderer is that ghosts don't exist and Bart was nearby in the mines so therefore it's Bart, which really makes no sense other than the fact that no one in the town likes Bart anyway because he has a mental disability, so let's all make fun of him. And Kit is so strident in this that, like, he, for example, in one scene nearly shoots Bart as he tries to get out of a tavern even though at this point he has no evidence, he hasn't arrested him, and, like, there's been no trial, but Kit is totally willing to just shoot a man dead in the street because he thinks he might be a murderer. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no point in the story where Kit comes to, like, the realization on his own that he was wrong about Bart. There's no, like, redemptive thing where he's like, oh, I was wrong this whole time. He never apologizes to Bart. Um, He has to be told that it wasn't Bart, uh, by his, like, superior officers who are like, we suspect it's Sir Henry. Um, and even after he's told, like, he never he never apologizes, right? Mm-hmm. So even though at the end of the movie, you know, sitting with everyone around the table, ha ha ha, everything's great, he knows he was wrong about Bart, but he strikes me as the kind of person who will make that same mistake in the future with the next person he meets who's different from him. Um, so it's it was really hard for me to take Kit as kind of the hero, um, luckily, he's he's really not. Um, the hero for most of the story is Letty. Yes, um, who is quite like admirably played, I thought, by Eleanor Parker.
1: Yeah, she's the one who's advocating for Bart, um, helping him get out of the jail, going with him to these secret passages. It's odd because she's not in the opening yeah, of not, the like... movie with um, the doctor being in this inn and being told stories and everything like that, there's no indication of her at all. Then after we see the doctor slash Simon get killed, it opens like the next morning with her having tea and you're like, why? Who is this? Why are we talking with her? Why Why do we care who this person is? Yet she can. Cont- throughout the rest of the story, is our point of view character.
0: Yeah, she basically takes the baton of protagonist from Dr. Holmes for the section of the movie where we think Dr. Holmes is dead, which is basically almost the entire rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, your, Your big hint that Dr. Holmes isn't dead is really just that he's the title character, and it's like a little weird, but it could have just been a badly titled movie... We've had a few of those. Um, Yeah, and like speaking of the movie putting in like little details, like they think that the doctor might be a Nazi spy at the start of the movie, like the people in town. And that is, you know, the audience thinks that might be true as well because we see him writing these like messages like operations are beginning or whatever. And then it turns out later, no, he's like a British internal security agent who's like here to stop the Nazis. So like that's a good misdirect as well.
1: Yeah, I think this movie had some fairly good writing behind it. Not
0: amazing, Mm.
1: but it wasn't incompetently written.
0: No, and it's taking some standard plot setups like you know, the rural English town out by the moor that has this superstitious belief about whatever and the, uh, you know, the local aristocrats involved and an outsider comes in and there's mysterious murders. Like, the opening bit of this movie is Undying Monster, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does a smart enough job turning that into some anti-Nazi wartime propaganda. The wartime content in it is, like, strident enough that... Like we were kind of saying earlier, it lacks a lot of entertainment value, like, outside of the war. Mm-hmm. Like, Casablanca is still a good movie, regardless of what's going on politically in the world today, right? Yeah. Um, whereas this movie gets so close to being a recruitment video that... <laughs> it really does. It, yeah, that it, like, it doesn't... It doesn't quite have a lot to offer on its own, other than, like, it's competently well-made, doesn't have any major plot holes and like fills an hour admirably you know
1: mm-hmm. so i think we're both in agreement that this is not horror
0: yeah it has like a lot like i said earlier like some horror trappings the fog bound moors the style of the credits um <laughs> really the whole like first act before the doctor gets killed feels like a horror movie and then it quickly becomes this wartime thriller um and even though it's not necessary for the plot when Simon goes into the mine after the doctor and he switches from hood to gas mask, we get to see his, you know, horribly scarred dynamite face. um, Because, like, that's something that horror audiences, like, expect at this point in the genre is that you get to, you know, see the monster's face or whatever. And because there isn't really a monster and that's not really what this movie is, we get that in the first act, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely, for me... A bait and switch.
0: Yeah. Um.
1: Kind of like, I know you want your candy, your <laughs> horror, but let's get some vegetables slash wartime propaganda down there too.
0: Yeah, this is good for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would it would definitely be like if you you know today went to go see like a James Wan uh, conjuring universe horror movie, like, a modern horror movie, and, like, 30 minutes in, it turned into, like, a Michael Bay, like, fucking U.S. Army helicopters come in, shoot the, like, uh, you know, the the haunted doll, and then are like, all right, like, time to join up! And then, like, flew off to, like, go fight ISIS or something. Like, that's kind of what this movie is like.
1: And I, I just wanted to, like, bring up that, like, this movie, as propaganda does not work as horror. But I, I just want to point out that horror and propaganda in and of themselves are not incompatible.
0: Sure, yeah. You could do a anti-Nazi horror movie that was much more like straight horror than this, if you wanted to.
1: Famine Maria.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Where it's, you know, the message is, beware of Nazi ideology. Mm-hmm. But our characters are still survivors. You yeah. Know? A propaganda film, you know, you, you typically have heroes at the end, but that's not necessary. Like, here in The Mysterious Doctor, they're heroes. Mm-hmm. Even the townsfolk don't feel like, oh, man, we survived this harrowing experience of random people being killed to keep us from the mine. It's, great, now we can serve our country! Yeah, I think
0: the the moment where you can absolutely for sure say that a movie isn't horror anymore is when it has, like, a James Bond villain in it who, like, is going to, like, <laughs> tie up the hero and give, like, a speech about, like, what his evil plan has been all along. And, like, you're never going... I
1: this room just for people like you yeah, to below. Like kill... Yeah,
0: exactly. And, you know, I'm going to give you my speech about my evil backstory and motivations and then kill you. ha Like, that's... At that point, something is not a horror movie anymore. Yeah. Right?
1: Yeah, at that point it felt like a Batman serial. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we are both in agreement that this is not horror, so even though it's our 100th episode, The Mysterious Doctor from 1943, directed by Benjamin Stoloff, is not going on
0: the list. No. Yeah, a lot of fake-outs in the 40s. Yeah, We have more, like, stuff on the non-applicable list from the 40s than, like, any other decade.
1: I at least appreciate that this film is, like, specifically doing a bait-and-switch, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's not like, oh, I just wanted to throw in the stuff that was popular. It's like, people are in dark horror, let's get them in, give them some of those trappings, kind of scratch that itch a little bit, but then give them some propaganda and get the to de- Buy some war
0: bonds. Right. Yeah. This movie knows what it's doing, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to like Undying Monster, which I think is you know we I think we said that movie had like genre dysphoria because it just didn't know what kind of movie it was. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. If you would like to see the other films on the not applicable part of the list, you can go to ScreamScenePodcast.tumblr.com. While you're there, why not check out some of the movies that are on the list? Last episode, Dead Men Walk, that went on the list. Before that, Cat People, number two. Check that one out. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, feel free to drop us an appeal through our appeals box on our website, or email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene.
0: Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you can leave us a rating or a review on the service that you listen to the show on, Uh, That would be much appreciated. We also appreciate it if you just share the show with people you think would like the show. Talk about us on social media or in the real world. Another way you can help support us is by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. You can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 level get access to weekly bonus audio. And patrons at the $10 level get access to horror short stories that I write, so... That are exclusive to Patreon. Yeah. So that's patreon.com slash podcast.
1: What are we watching next week, Ben?
0: Well, next week, Sarah, we are back at uh, Monogram Studios. It's uh, another Bella Lugosi picture. It's The Ape Man.
1: Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of looking forward to this, because Karloff has a movie, The Ape Man, that did not actually make it to the list.
0: Yeah, so we, we weren't like super impressed with it.
1: No, so I'm really interested to see Lugosi's Ape Man and then
0: compare, like directly compare. Spoiler, Lugosi is the titular Ape Man. Okay, I mean Karloff was too. Karloff was like a scientist who dressed up in like an ape costume. Lugosi is an Ape Man. <laughs> Cool. I'm loving it already. All right. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.